Halloween Day 2018. The guy that I had worked for in ministry for 17 years walks in my room, sits down, and says, Seth, I have grandkids in New Jersey, and I miss them. I have grandkids in Southern California, and I miss them. And we're in Texas, and no family is in between. And so I've taken a new role as a lead pastor in Santa Barbara, California, to which I said I'm jealous. He's close to his grandkids. And in that moment, there were a lot of questions that came to my mind. There were a lot of concerns that came to my mind. Because this was the guy that had poured his life into me, who had taught me, who I'd learned from, who I could go to with an open door when I couldn't figure something out, which spiritually was like a father to me, but he was leaving. I had questions. I had concerns. My heart was troubled. In John chapter 14, Jesus broke, breaks the news of farewell to his own disciples. Have you ever been there? When somebody close to you, somebody who's mentored you, discipled you, walked with you in some kind of way or another says, hey, I'm leaving, I'm not going to be close, have you ever experienced that feeling? Have you experienced those troubles, those questions? Jesus' disciples experience that as well in John 14. They have questions. They want to know where he's going. They want to know if they can come with him. They want to know how they can get there. But out of these troubles, Jesus shares an incredible encouragement with them that I want to share with you as well. And two incredible promises. Turn with me to John chapter 14. And we'll be in verses 1 through 6. That's page 900 and 901 on the Bible on the end of your row if you need it. And we'll look at the sixth I am statement in our study. If you're new with us this morning, we've been walking in the book of John through the I am statements of Jesus, the things Jesus says about himself. And we come to the place in John 14, many of you know this passage, where Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Sometimes we coordinate our songs really well for you guys. So let's read it. John 13. I'm going to start in 13 to give you a little context. 13, 33, and I'll read through 14, 6. Would you follow along with me? Jesus says this. So that he's already in Jerusalem. Last Supper, Jesus is, or Judas is already taken out. There's already trouble at the Last Supper. And then Jesus says this. Little children talking to his disciples in verse 33. Yet in a little while, only a little while, I'm with you. You will seek me in just as I said to the Jews, so now I also will say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. And a new commandment I give you, that you would love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if, I have, if you have love for one another. And Peter said to him, verse 36, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now. He doesn't tell him. But you will follow me afterward. Peter said to him, like Peter would, Lord, why can't I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. But then Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself, 
that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says to him a question. Lord, we don't know the way where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus said to him, these exclusive words, I am the way, Thomas. I am the truth, Thomas. I am the life. And for emphasis, no one comes to the Father except through me. Look back at verse 1. The first idea that I want to share with you today is an encouragement from Jesus to his disciples before he tells them where he's going and who he is. In your troubles, keep entrusting yourself to Jesus. You're meant to see that in verse 1. Notice Jesus says, your troubles. Think about what Jesus is going through at this moment. He's just outed Judas, and Judas has left. In the next few hours, these same men who need their questions answered, who have concerns, who are troubled, are going to flee from him. And after that, he's going to be arrested. And he's going to go through a trial, and he's going to be beaten and scourged. And he's going to walk the hill with the cross to Calvary. And the father is going to turn his back on his son because of sin. And he's going to die a criminal's death on a cross for you and for me. And yet, that's about to happen. And yet, who is Jesus thinking about? He's thinking about his disciples and his disciples' troubles. And where his disciples are at. In John 13, the chapter before, Jesus says this. Having loved his own in the world, he loved them even to the end. Even when he was going through his own trouble, he loved them to the end. The very men that would tuck tail and run. He loved them. He met them where he was. When your heart is breaking, are you able to bear other people's burdens? Or do you only need for people to bear yours? When I think about that, I think about moms. I think about moms every day who always, especially with little kids, always have the burden of taking care of their children, their little children, no matter what's going on in their own lives, no matter what burdens they are bearing. Thank you, moms, for being that. I think of my wife for a number of years as her mom walked through cancer and the way that she cared for our children and our family. That's a thing that God can do even in those moments. What do you do when your heart is troubled? I think we can take a page out of Jesus' life when his heart was troubled. The Bible says that Jesus' heart was troubled. And in John chapter 12, we learn that Jesus, when his heart was troubled, that he submitted to his Father's will. We see this in the garden. We see this on the cross where Jesus submits to the Father's will even when he doesn't understand why his Father turns from him. And he says what? Not my will in the garden, but your will be done. What a great truth for us when we are troubled to submit to the Father's will. We have to keep on submitting to the Father's will. And that's really the language. You can't see it here in verse 1 though. But in the, in the language of the text, it says, Let not your hearts, disciples, be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The word believe there is in present tense. So he's saying, keep on believing in me. Even before I give you the promise of heaven, even before I give you the path to heaven, believe in me. Keep on believing. Anybody, greatest hits, journey, 
Don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. You don't have to hold on to a feeling. You have the living God who bears you up. And when you're not sure what is up or down in your life or where Jesus is in your troubles, keep on entrusting yourself to him. But here's the deal. At this point in the story, Peter has not been given his answer. Have you ever asked someone a question and they kind of divert? I mean, this is what happens. Peter says, where are you going? And Jesus says, where I go, you can't follow me. What happens in that moment in your life? I want to really know the answer now because you're not telling me where you're going. And so he doesn't have the answer. And without the answer, Jesus calls them to do what? He calls them to believe in him. He calls them to keep on believing in him, even without the promise of heaven to come. Maybe I just ruined our heaven-centric gospel presentations. But we believe in Jesus, not because of what we get. We believe in Jesus because he has delivered us from our sin, and he forgives us for our sin. But look at verse 2 and 3. He gives us the answer, the answer of where he's going. And look at the way he does it. He paints this picture. In verse 2, look at it. In my Father's house, God the Father, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. Where I am, you may be also. So he tells them. He gives them the answer. And this is clearly the promise of heaven. He's going to heaven, to his Father's house. It's a real place. So second, in your troubles, remember that Jesus will one day, one day, bring his children home. Do you believe that? That one day Jesus will bring you home. This language that Jesus uses, this picture of a father's house and going to prepare a place and that he would come again would be familiar imagery to a first century Jew. The Jews would be thinking about what? They would be thinking about the, the, the process in first century Jewish culture of how a man courts a woman, is betrothed to a woman, and then gets married to a woman. This language is about marriage. They would have understood it that way. We don't quite capture it, but let me walk you through it. You see, in that day, a groom would go to the bride's father and pay a price, a dowry, a price. For the bride. And then that groom, once they settled on the price, that groom would go back to his father's house and prepare a room for his wife. Ladies, I'm sorry, but if you lived in first century, you would have to live with your in-laws and in the father's house, in, your, in the groom, in your husband's house. And what that groom would do is he would build on to his father's house. And during that time, the bride would be preparing herself, would be remaining pure and being ready and set apart for the groom. And then once the father's house, the rooms that were added on in that house were prepared and they were ready, the groom would come for his bride and he would take his bride to his father's house. Do you see the imagery of what Jesus is doing here? 
I want you to think about the gospel for just a minute. And the truth of the gospel is this, that Jesus the groom pays the price for the bride on the cross and he ascends to heaven to his father's house and he prepares a place for the bride, the church, you and me, that we might come to him and be with him one day. Either because he comes back or we die and we ascend and we're with him. Isn't that beautiful? That's the picture of the gospel that you see here. We need to remember that one day Jesus will bring his children home. People who know him. Who have come into his family as adopted sons and daughters of the king. How do you think about heaven? Since we're talking about it. How do you think about heaven? And the promise of heaven. The purpose of heaven. You know, in our culture, there's a lot of different ways heaven is kind of depicted, aren't there? I mean, it's kind of like this, in one way, it's kind of like this fairy tale land. You know, it's not really real. But let me tell you, Jesus is saying right here, heaven is for real. And it's not for real because a little boy went to heaven and wrote a book and came back and said, see, I have the experience, it's real. It's real because Jesus said it was real, that he had been there for eternity. Then he came here and lived and died on a cross and he went back to his father. Heaven is for real because Jesus here says it's for real. So heaven isn't a fairy tale. It's a real place. It's not this existential place where souls are floating around. This new agey idea. It's material. Heaven is a material place. It's a real place. But here's the thing. Heaven is not about materialism. You know, when we read this text, maybe your translation says mansion. I'm going to just let the air out of that for just a minute in our materialistic culture and the way we think about mansions. The word you get is, not, is better translated, not mansion, but abode. Which one do you want to live in? I want to live in the mansion, not the abode. So it takes the wind a little bit out of the materialism of heaven. And yes, heaven is about the streets of gold. And yes, heaven It's about the abode, and yes, heaven, there is reward in heaven for us, for our faithfulness. Jesus speaks about, yes, I think heaven is a place where we might be likely reunited with people that we know, our family, that we miss, and all those things are fine. But that's not primarily what heaven is about. It's not some existential thing. It's not a fairy tale land. It's not primarily materialistic. For those who do good, that get something out of it, primary point of heaven and the primary thing of heaven is that Jesus is there. That Jesus is there. When you go to the book of Revelation and and John is carried up into heaven, who do you see in heaven? What do you see in heaven? You see Jesus. You see people worshiping Jesus and knowing the Lamb. Jesus is central to heaven if your view of heaven doesn't have Jesus in the center of it. It's a less than biblical view of heaven. And there are, there's things we don't know about heaven, but the one thing that we do know is that the primary point of heaven is that Jesus is there and we are with him. Amen? So we've discovered where Jesus is going. He's going to heaven. But it begs the question that Thomas asks next. Look at it. Thomas asks a good question. I know Thomas gets a bad rap, but he asks a good question. It's, it's the part of the question that Jesus didn't really answer. Je- How do we know the way? What Thomas is saying is, what's the address 
to the Father's house. How do I get there? You're preparing a place. You're going to come again. How do I get there? That's a good question. I want to know the address. I want to know the way. I want to know what road to take to get there. I want to know if there are multiple routes to get there or if there's just one. Thomas asked a good question, even in his doubt. And here's Jesus' answer. The answer sometimes when we're talking with friends who don't know Jesus or are part of a different religion, we kind of squirm about a little bit. I'm the way. You want to know the direction? I'm the road. I'm the path. I'm the directions. I'm the way. The text literally reads, I'm the way because I am the truth and I am the life. We've unpacked that in the I am statements of Jesus, haven't we? I'm the light of the world. I am the truth. I'm the word made flesh, the very word of God made flesh. I'm the truth, and the truth will set you free. I am the life. Last week, we looked at the Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Life is from Jesus. Life and death are all about Jesus. And so here, the focus is the path. Kind of like when Ross preached about the door. These are exclusive claims that he makes. So in your troubles, third, understand the one road home goes through Jesus. The one road home goes through Jesus. That might get flagged on YouTube today. Or if we threw it on Facebook, it might get flagged. It might get canceled. I'm okay with that. He's the road. He's the path. The first part of that is kind of palatable for our 21st century ears, isn't it? I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the light. It's catchy. Second part leaves no doubt. You catch it? It's exclusive. No one, nobody, nada, comes to the Father except through me. And sometimes we search for other passages. Does he say anything else? Well, how about this one? Acts chapter 4, verse 12. There is no other way, no other name under heaven that's been given to men that men can be saved than the name of Jesus. 1 Timothy chapter 2. There is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus says it. Luke says it. Timothy says it. It's an exclusive claim. What do we do with that in a pluralistic world where nobody can have a monopoly on the truth? That's the world that we live in, right? Nobody gets to have a monopoly on the truth. That, rule, that thought rules our day. Somebody said it this way. Uh, religious claims of exclusivity are met with resistance. The resistance, get this picture, of an angry toddler pushing back a, back a plate of broccoli. See, exclusive claims get you the title bigot today. The idea that you've cornered the market on religious truth gets you flagged, gets you canceled. See, we're really comfortable in our culture with the picture of the blind man and the blind men and the elephant. You feel part of the elephant, and so your truth is your truth, but there's somebody else that feels of a different part of an elephant, but that in and of itself, if you take it to its logical end, is a truth claim in and of itself. It completely breaks down. 
And if we were to parse through the logic of a pluralistic idea of God, that there's one mountain, God's on top of the mountain, there are many different ways it breaks down. It sounds really good, but it breaks down. Guess what? And it's an exclusive truth claim in and of itself as well. If you don't ascribe to it, then it's a singular truth claim that there are many ways to God. And the other problem is, of it is if you actually go study the different religions of the world, what happens? The Muslim has a different kind of God and a different path than the Christian, and on and on and on. And so I don't know about you, but I'm not going to bend my knee to a God who is inconsistent. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? That he's spoken one thing to these people, and he's turned around and come over here and said something very different about himself and the way in which I know him to a different group of people. What kind of God is that? I would not bow to that kind of God, would you? Pluralism doesn't work. But here are the ditches we fall into as Christians with this. Because we live in this world that espouses this supermarket view of religion, don't we? So we have to do something with that. And I like talking about ditches, and I think there's a couple ditches that we fall into. You know, sometimes we fall into this very soft and muddy ditch on one side. And that soft and muddy ditch is that we don't accept the scandal or the offense of the gospel when we read this. We don't accept it. Or we sure don't want to talk about it. We want to skip it. And that's a muddy, soft ditch. We shrink back from the truth. Listen, you've got to accept the exclusivity of Christ. It's not caring for your friend who doesn't believe. To give them half-truths about the gospel. It doesn't save them any more than anything else does. Half-truths of the gospel are not truths. We have to accept the offense. We have to accept the scandal of the gospel. But we also have to do something else. And here's the other ditch. The other ditch is this hard, concrete ditch that fully accepts the exclusivity of Christ. But instead of letting it be a burden for us to share the gospel with people, we make it a battering ram. where We, we argue for this, and we just want to win arguments about the exclusivity of Christ because Jesus says it. And we become a battering ram rather than burden for the lost, burden for the non-religious, burden especially in this case for the religious who are pursuing a path that will not lead them to the Father's house. If anything, this message ought to make us more burdened for the lost who don't know Jesus, who don't know the way, who don't know the truth, who don't know the life. Don't use assurance in a way that is a battering ram for people around you. And so I think what happens is, is if we don't have confidence sometimes in sharing about Jesus, we tend to be kind of muddy about it. And oftentimes, if we don't have tact, we tend to be the battering ram. So where do you fall? You probably fall or tend to fall in one of those two places. But the beauty, I think, of apologetics. See, apologetics, rightfully understood and studied, is not about winning an argument. It's about winning hearts toward Jesus, that people can ask questions in an environment where they 
have relationships. So we, we serve the exclusivity of Jesus on a plate of, of grace. This is why Paul says when we share the gospel, we should do it. We should season it with salt. Think about a piece of meat that doesn't have any seasoning on it. Except that really good ribeye, sorry. Doesn't work. Seasoned with salt, it adds flavor to it. And that's what grace does. That's what the grace of the gospel does. But here's the, here's the heart of it. The heart of it is we can't use it as a battering ram. You think about your own life. You think, I think about my own life. It's God who saves sinners, not me. Me winning an argument doesn't do that. God sovereignly, by his grace, is going to draw people to himself. So why would I use this truth, exclusive truth, as a battering ram with people? He's the one who saves them. He calls them to himself. And so I'd encourage you, I've got a couple of applications here. Tomorrow night, ladies, there's a study. It's a book study. It's called Tactics. Tact. <laughs> okay. How do I share the gospel with people? How do I walk with people and share the gospel with people in a way that is gracious? It's truthful, but it's gracious. Tomorrow night. Sign up. This fall, institute class. Opportunity to learn better a Christian worldview so you can engage people with the gospel confidently, but also secure and knowing that people don't reject you, they're rejecting God. So I'd encourage you tactics, book study, institute. But there's something else about Jesus saying, last thing, there's something else about Jesus saying that I'm the way, the truth, in the life. You know, in Old Testament Israel, they had three different offices, spiritual offices, to help the people of God follow Him. There were prophets, there were priests, and there was a king. I want you to think about those three offices when you think about Jesus saying that He is the way, He is the truth, and He is the life. You see, when He says He's the way, this is Jesus describing himself being a priest. What does a priest do? He's a mediator between God and man. He makes sacrifice for sin. You know, Jesus was the last and final sacrifice the book of Hebrews tells us. He didn't just cover sin, but he took it away. So when Jesus says he's the way, the one mediator between God and man He's saying, I am the priest. I am the final high priest. What about the truth? What did a prophet do in Israel? God came to the prophet, spoke words that were true, and the prophet was supposed to do what? He was supposed to go to the people and proclaim the truth. Forth tell, foretell the truth of God to the people. A prophet tells the truth. This is what Jesus is saying. He's been saying I am the truth. I am the word made flesh. I'm the truth. So Jesus is priest. He is prophet. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You see, King Jesus gives and sustains life and upholds the universe by the word of his power. You see, the certain road to the Father goes through Jesus the prophet, the priest, and the king. Do you know him? He's provided a way for you to know him. 
He is the truth. He is the life. Are you sharing that message with those around you? It's certain. It's exclusive. As much as our world rails against certainty, we like certainty. We like certainty. We like certainty in our calendars. Anybody not like certainty in our calendars? Maybe some of you. But most of you like certainty in your daytimer. You like certainty with your health. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, it might be this, and we could try a treatment over here, but it might be this thing way over here, so we can try either one of those things. What are you thinking? I'm going to go get another opinion. I'm, just, you're just not gonna, I'm not going to be a guinea pig for you. I'm going to try this out. I want to know with certainty what's going on. And when you find certainty and the doctor gives you some medicine or a prescription for some medicine and you get in your car and you go to Walgreens, what do you want from that pharmacist? Do you want him to go down the aisle and go, well, we'll just throw a little bit of that in, throw a little bit of this in? You want certainty with your health. You also want certainty with your money, don't you? You ever seen the Rocket Mortgage commercials with Tracy Morgan? Certain is better. You ever seen them? They're pretty hilarious. You need to go see them. You're looking at me like I don't know what you're talking about. There's a family, so I'll just paint you the picture. Family looking for a home, comes in the home. The wife turns to the husband with the kids present. Can we even afford this house? And the husband says, I'm pretty sure we can. And Tracy Morgan, who is sitting in a bathtub, a bubble bath on the side, the scene turns to him. And he says, pretty sure? With Rocket Mortgage, you can be certain. Not pretty sure. I'm a commercial for Rocket Mortgage right now. And then the scene pans, right? You know, the, are, you, are you tracking with me now? Am I helping you out? And then the scene pans, and the husband says, well, what's the difference? And Tracy Morgan says, well, let me show you. And then you see the scene that pans over to camping out, and he's got this mushroom that he's about to eat. I'm pretty sure these aren't poisonous, and he eats it and he falls over. I'm pretty sure these are parachute. They're skydiving. And the little girl goes, there's a sandwich in my backpack. And kicks her out. And then they come to the hornet's nest. I'm pretty sure the hornets aren't the murdering type. And the hornet nest falls on the guy's head. And then they come to the bridge. Bust through the bridge and says, I'm pretty sure we can make it. And the drawbridge is open. And the car's going over. And they're screaming. And the scene pans back into the home. They say, certain is better. Let's, let's go with certain. Funny commercial. Certain is better, y'all. The takeaway today is Jesus is your certainty. He's your certainty in your troubles when you don't know what's next. He is your certainty as he goes to prepare a place for you in heaven with his Father. It is certain. And he is the certain path, the certain road. For you to know him and get there. Jesus is your certainty. Do you know him? Do you follow him? Do you accept the exclusive statement of who he is? Let me pray. Father, in many ways, these are Hard truths for our 21st century ears to hear. 
They're not palatable. And yet, you telling us the truth about who you are is the most loving thing that you could do for us. It's the most loving message that we could share like the disciples with others who don't yet know you. So Lord, I pray that we would receive your word and understand it, believe it, that we would believe that in our troubles that you are there, that we would in our troubles know the promise of heaven and that you are preparing a place for your children. That where you are, one day we will be. What certain hope that is. And not only that, that, but you are the way. That we don't have to come up with our own path. We don't have to find some spiritual guru to find a path for us. But you've given us the way, the truth, and the life through your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.